Good to be with you guys. Excited to crack open the Word this morning. You know, I think many people have concerns and questions about the church, the fate of the church. You know, I kind of think, maybe firmly think, that the greatest threat the church faces is not external, but it's internal. It's the threat of the church, particularly in the West, not holding on to the true historic Christian faith, not keeping themselves centered on Jesus and the gospel. And I think sadly, too often, Christians and churches slip away from the Christian faith and fall into what has been called Christian moralistic therapeutic deism. I know that's a mouthful. You can Google it. I didn't make it up. But Christian moralistic therapeutic deism is this idea. It, it is Christian in the sense that there's a, an affinity for Jesus, references to the Bible, but it's moralistic, meaning that its focus is on trying to help you live a good, upright life on your own. Be moral. It's therapeutic in the sense that, that the center of this take on religion is helping you deal with your pain, feel good about yourself, be the best version of yourself. And it's called deism because it's this idea that God is distant from us. He's sort of set apart. He created the world, but it's up to us to sort of work hard, better ourselves and the world. And maybe from time to time, God will step in. But Christian moralistic therapeutic deism is not what the Bible teaches. It's not the gospel. I dare say it's not even Christianity. See, the gospel, the good news, is not what we can do for God, but what God has done for us. Amen? See, the good news that we live by is that salvation comes only by God's grace through faith in the work of Christ. And as you know, I've encouraged us to think about the saving work of Christ as centered on two crucial components, like two foci of an ellipse, the death and the resurrection of Christ. That's the saving work. Both the atoning death of Christ and His life-giving resurrection work together to accomplish our salvation. You can read in places like Romans 6 how through faith we have become united with Christ. And so that His death, it means that we have died to our old life. We're delivered from sin and death. And we're united with Christ in His resurrection, which means we are now born again to a new life. A life of obedience and victory in the Holy Spirit. See, the, the gospel, the good news, is what Christ has done for us. And only through faith are we joined with Him. And His death means our death to our old self and His resurrection means we're born again to a new life, rescued from our old life and transferred to a new life. And this gospel message is the center of the Bible. It's the center of Christianity. It's the center of our lives. As Tim Keller says, the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z. The gospel is all that we have, the beginning and end of our message. See, some think that the gospel is just the diving board. It's the diving board that we use to jump into the pool of Christianity. But no, no, no. The gospel is the pool. The good news of Christ and His death and resurrection is the the pool where we swim and live as Christians. J.D. Greer, in his great book, simply called Gospel, says it like this. Nope. It's not coming up. Is it going to come up? All right, you have to... There it is. All right. (laughs) Greer says this. He says, living a life centered on the gospel is not about praying the sinner's prayer to make sure you're going to heaven and then learning a bunch of new principles to master the Christian life. Gospel-centeredness is about saturating your heart in the good news of Jesus, letting it so remake your mind that you see everything about yourself and your life through its lens. Listen to this. Growth in Christ is not going beyond the gospel, but going deeper into it. Friends, I hope and pray that that's what you hear and that's what we're about here at Living Hope. 
That if we're truly going to spend the Christian life going deeper into the gospel, I believe that we need to explore and get a grip on not only what Christ has accomplished in His death and resurrection, but how His great work of salvation is applied to us by faith. See, when we truly trust in Christ, there's this vast, deep, rich array of benefits and blessings that is applied to us. And so I don't want a one-dimensional view of Christ's work in my life. Jesus died to forgive me of my sins. That, that is the gospel, but it's a one-dimensional view. I want us to have a full-scope, comprehensive view. I want us to see the gospel in 3D, you might say. We need to grow in understanding what I've called the multifaceted gospel. You can see on this next slide, this idea that the gospel is, is, is multidimensional, like six sides of a cube. We need to see the six fundamental ways that Christ's work has transformed us. We've been justified, we've been regenerated, reconciled, adopted, redeemed, justified. Each of those dimensions of the gospel bring life to us, not just a moment of your initial salvation, but throughout your life. And so we can talk about the reality that we've been justified, means we've been forgiven and declared righteous. God is a merciful judge, He forgives our disobedience and lifts our guilt. We've been regenerated into new life. God is a gracious life giver who causes my dead and empty heart to be reborn to a life of victory and hope. We've been reconciled through the work of Christ, brought to peace, because God is a wise peacemaker. He reconciles us from a state of alienation and restores our broken relationship into a relationship of peace. We've been adopted, and that means we have new identity. That God is our loving Father who has adopted those who were lost and gave us an identity and a purpose as His children, His sons and daughters. We've been redeemed. We now have freedom because God is a powerful deliverer who sets us free from the bondage of sin and the oppression of evil. And we've been sanctified, we've been made pure because God is a holy purifier who not only forgives the guilt of our sin, but cleanses us from the shame of sin, restores our worth in a life of purity. And so this beautiful, multifaceted gospel is both a spring of living water that we offer to those in need, but it's also a vast ocean that we swim in and live in and explore all of our lives, indeed for all of eternity. Friends, do you believe this? Do you believe that Christ has done this for you, is continuing to do this for you, and at the day of His return, that your salvation will be complete? Is this your hope? Is this what you trust in, what you believe in? And you may not be a good Christian, as I hear people say sometimes, but Jesus is good enough for you. He has accomplished His work. And our hope today is that we fall down and we say, I need a Savior. By the way, if you want to know more about this idea of the multifaceted gospel, just go to our website. There's a great little search function at the top of the right-hand corner. Just type in multifaceted gospel. You can see our sermon series, blogs, written to help you unpack these ideas. But I'm saying all of this today just by way of introduction, just by way of introducing uh, where we're going to be at this morning in our series in 1 Thessalonians. We're calling our series Faith in the Gospel. And so if the series is, is Faith in the Gospel, I want us to be reminded of what the Gospel is, right? No sense talking about it and preaching a series about it if we don't remember what the Gospel is. That's the Gospel. Faith in this Gospel is what transforms our lives, our hope, our identity, our purpose, our mission. And so we're going to hop back in where we left off last week. We are now in First Thessalonians 2, second chapter, same page we've been on, page 986, if you have one of the blue hardback Bibles from the back, love for you to follow along with us each week. It'll make a lot more sense, I promise you, if you have the words in front of you. But what we're going to see this morning is that in light of the fact that we have been entrusted with the gospel, 
We, we have been entrusted with the gospel for ourselves personally and for the world around us. And so in light of that, it means that we need to speak the gospel and we need to share our lives. And we're going to unpack that this morning, that we speak the gospel and we share our lives. That means initially with your families and your friends and our church and your neighbors and your classmates and your co-workers. And look, if we can truly get a grip of this full scope, this comprehensive view of the gospel beyond just a one-dimensional, oversimplified understanding, it means that who Christ is and what He's done for us is relevant. We can speak the gospel and we can share our lives in any and every context because the gospel is relevant to every thought that we have, every word that we speak, every relationship, every conversation, every situation, every failure, every success, every joy, every sorrow. The work of Christ connects, infuses, and brings life to every moment of our lives. So let's read together 1 Thessalonians 2. I'm just going to ask for help again real quick. Father in heaven... Send your Holy Spirit now as we hear from your word, as we dive in to unpack the truths of Christ and the good news of our salvation. Give us grace. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see as we hear now the word of God. Amen. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others that we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Because you had become very dear to us. Amen. So he opens up there in chapter 2. He says, brothers and sisters, you know... Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, you know it wasn't a waste that we visited you. It wasn't in in vain. What God did was amazing. And he says, even though we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, you remember they were in the city of Philippi before they had come there, and, and in Philippi they had been falsely accused and beaten and arrested, but they still showed up in their city boldly ready to proclaim the gospel. And And then again in the city of Thessalonica, they faced similar opposition. But even in the midst of much conflict, Paul writes there, they shared the good news of new life and salvation in Christ. And so their ministry wasn't in vain because they saw much fruit. The Spirit of God worked, opened up the hearts of the people. They came to faith. Christians were formed. A church was planted. Now look, despite the fruitfulness of Paul and Silas and Timothy's ministry, despite their proven dedication to God and care for the people, they did again and again face constant persecution and opposition to their ministry. And Paul we know from reading his letters, faced an almost constant barrage of accusations about his intentions, about his character, even about the content of his message. And his opponents tried to frame him either as an insurrectionist or a heretic or just a self-seeking religious propagandist. And so Paul, as he does elsewhere, is going to defend his ministry 
against these false accusations. He says in verse 3, look, the appeal that we are making, our encouragement and our exhortation to you, doesn't come from some kind of erroneous thinking or impure motives. We're not coming to you in deceit or trickery. What does he say in verse 5? God is our witness. We didn't come to you with flattery. We didn't just say nice things to try to butter you up and gain influence. We didn't have greedy motives trying to preach the gospel just so we could line our pockets. In fact, we'll go on to read next week in verse 9 how how they worked hard in a trade to support themselves so as not to be a burden to these new Christians so that they couldn't be accused of being greedy. He says in verse 6, we didn't come here seeking personal glory or fame or recognition. We were looking for accolades from men. He has this little side note. I mean, we are apostles. We could have puffed ourselves up. We could have asserted our authority and demanded your your honor and attention. But we didn't do that. Because Paul's not out for personal recognition. See, he knows that he has been approved by God. Approved by God to, to speak the word. That's our, that's our first big point this morning. Look at verse 4. He says, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. You hear him? He says, we're not people pleasers. We're not trying to gain your favor. We're not just speaking so that you'll think we're good and ministering so that you'll like us. No, we speak and we minister to please God because he's the one that examines our hearts. He's the one that tests our hearts. But Paul goes on there to confidently say, we have been approved. We have been called by God. We have been entrusted with this gospel. And that's why we speak and even write to you now. See, they were well aware that if God is the one who tests them and approves of them, if God is the one that commends them, then what reason do they have to seek to please the people around them? The word approval in the Greek, it means that they've been examined and they've been tested. Someone whose intentions have been validated, whose capabilities have been confirmed. And Paul and Silas and Timothy can say this, not because they're such great guys, but because they know that that Christ has redeemed them. They know that the Holy Spirit has filled them. They know that they have been gifted by God. They know that despite all of their weaknesses, despite all of their ongoing sins and struggles, that they've been validated, they've been confirmed, that they've been tested and found approval, commendation through Christ. And they've been now commissioned, entrusted with the gospel, and and commissioned to speak the gospel. How many of us live our lives for the approval of other people? Looking for the opinions of others. Hoping to please the people around us. If I listen to the right music, talk the right way, dress the right way, the kids at school will approve of me. If I wait on my spouse hand and foot, maybe I'll get that smile. Maybe I'll get an acknowledgement and an and indication that they love me. If I work hard enough and sign up for overtime and show up early, maybe my supervisor's at work. Maybe the other people on the team will approve of me, will validate me. But how freeing is it when we can live in the reality that we have the approval of God? Through faith in Christ, He says, you're my son, you're my daughter. There's nothing that you can do, nothing that you have done to make Him love you anymore. And, and we can now be free to be ourselves, our true selves, who we are truly created to be in Christ. Now we can be confident before others. See, if the God of the universe, if your Creator, your Father, your Redeemer, loves you, has approved of you, has gifted you and empowered you, has entrusted you with the most precious thing that there is, the, the, the truth of Jesus Christ, 
If you have His commendation, then you know what? You, you can be free. You can be free to go live. To live at home. Live in the, in the community. Live at work. Live in the church. And say, Christ has made me who I am. He loves me. I'm pleasing to Him. And we can now be free as we read here. Look, because the reality is that, that each of us, every follower of Christ, has been entrusted with the gospel. The gospel that you believe in has been stewarded to you. This beautiful power, life-giving message has been given to us as children. And, and we are now not only called children, we're called servants because we serve the living God. Not only servants, but stewards. We, we are God's stewards. That means He's entrusted the gospel to us to manage, oversee, and to carry it out to the world around us. What a privilege that is. What a responsibility that is that God has seen fit to entrust us with His gospel. What an opportunity to serve Him and to bless others with the life that we have received. And so because we've been entrusted with the gospel as stewards, may we say with Paul, as he says in verse 2, that we have boldness. Boldness in our God to declare the gospel of God. The word declare is really just a word for speaking. It's the same word translated as speaking there in verse 4. Some translations say that they had boldness in God to speak the gospel of God. It's not complicated. It's not fancy. It's just speaking the gospel. Speaking the good news. As we read last week in chapter 1 verse 5, our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. And so our, our first responsibility, opportunity, as those that have been entrusted with the gospel is to speak the gospel. Primarily, first of all, speak it to yourself. Wake up every day and remind yourself of the truths of Scripture. Remind yourself of the love of God, that you've been adopted and redeemed and forgiven and purified. And then speak it to your family. Speak life-giving words to your spouse, to your children. Speak the truths of the gospel to your siblings in the church, how they have been redeemed and set free, how they have been purified, how they have been reconciled back to God, adopted as sons and daughters. Let's speak these gospel truths to one another. And then, and then let's speak these gospel truths to our unbelieving friends. See, again, if, if, if we truly have a, a deep, vast understanding of, of what Christ has done for us, that He's forgiven our sins. He's freed us from the power of sin and death. He's reconciled us into peaceful relationship with our Creator. He's forgiven us. He's, he's purified us and removed our shame. If we truly have this deep and broad understanding, that means the Gospel is relevant to every situation, every conversation. One of my neighbors has been opening up to me recently at the bus stop. He shared with me one day last week about his insecurity and lack of direction in his career not feeling validated, not feeling appreciated. And now I'm seeing an opportunity to begin to speak the gospel to him. See, because it's not just, oh, you're having that hard time at work and, and, and feeling insecure. Well, you know, you're a sinner and you need to be forgiven. Look, he needs to hear that and we need to get there. But the first thing I can say to him is, is, is God is your father. And that, and that if you come to him, you can be adopted. You can be validated. You can have an identity and a security as a son of God. That's gospel truth. And God's opening doors to speak poignantly to Him. To talk to Him about His design. About His true purpose. About where His true meaning can come from. And, and so yes, we, we want to grow in this together as a church community. And, and I'll mention it again. I hope that you'll come back 
Sunday evening, October 10th, we're going to unpack the nuts and bolts of speaking these gospel truths to friends and families and neighbors, neighbors and coworkers and teammates and classmates. Talk about what it means to grow in biblical and practical tools and in, in, in our gospel awareness, our gospel confidence, our gospel perseverance. And so plan to join us because I, I need help. We're going to have time for brainstorming and discussion that night. I want to hear what God's doing in your life. Friends, if your faith is in Christ, you have His approval. He's entrusted you with the gospel. To not only speak the gospel, what does it go on to say in verses 7 and 8? Our next section, to share our lives. He says there in verse 8, You were so very dear to us, so loved by us, that we were committed to not only share the gospel, but also our very lives, our whole selves. A pastor told me one time about a church that was seeking to do some outreach and to spread the truth of the gospel in his urban, impoverished community. And so this church would, would regularly drive through his neighborhood and they would roll down the windows and stick a bullhorn out the window and shout at the neighborhood supposedly biblical truth and, and just keep on driving by. Friends, nowhere in here will you find any directive about drive-by shouting as a gospel ministry. What are we called to do? To share our lives. See, Paul moved into Thessalonica. He lived among the people. He worked among the people as a tent maker. He got to know them. He rubbed shoulders with them. He spent time with them. He had conversations with them. He shared his life with them. Not only the gospel, but also our very lives, our very souls, who we were. It says there that, that they were ready. They were excited to do that. To share something is to impart something that you have. To share it, you have to have it. Right? Christ has to be in us. Alive, active, stirring in our lives. We can only impart something to someone if we ourselves have it. Now this passage gives us this very vivid picture of what it looks like to share your life with, with others. It compares gospel ministry to the care of a nursing mother. Very poignant and beautiful picture here. Now, quick, quick tangent. Some, some say that Christianity is a soft religion. And it only appeals to, to women or weak men. Others say, well, you know, particularly if you're in a stream of Christianity that holds to the idea of gender distinction, that holds to the idea of male leadership, others would say, well, Christianity is this overly masculine concept of the world that only appeals to men. But the reality is in the scriptures, we see both feminine and masculine elements to our Christian faith. And God, who has revealed himself as a father, who is a father, but he has revealed his care for the church both in maternal and paternal aspects in fact you can go online and, and check out laura dybert's great blog called the maternal heart of god god our father has a maternal heart and there's feminine and masculine aspects of our christian faith we are described as the bride of christ men we are part of the bride of christ but we're also described as adopted sons of god legal inheritors of God's kingdom as adopted sons. And so today we're going to unpack a little bit of what I would call the, the motherly aspect to Christian gospel ministry, that motherly care. But next week, the next verse, Paul's going to unpack and describe the fatherly aspect to Christian ministry. So come back next week. 
But I want to draw out this morning three aspects of what we see in this passage of how Paul and his partners shared their lives, living among the people, working among the people, knowing them, investing in them, taking time. I imagine those late night fires with with Paul outside of his tent, talking around the campfire, laughing and praying and and sharing life together. And he describes that in in three ways. First of all, he says that we were gentle. In verse 7, we were gentle among you. And he says, gentle like a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Praise God for moms, for our our wives and mothers and, and sisters. If you've ever seen your wife or your mom nursing a, a, a small child, man, that's a picture of gentleness, isn't it? Now, I, I realize I, we may not see you at 3 a.m., and you might think, yeah, I'm not so gentle. It's not so picturesque in the middle of the night when they've woken me up. And But what a beautiful picture of gentleness. As a mother caring for this human being that she carried in, inside of her, gave birth to this baby, and now nurturing, feeding, gently caring for the child. Now remember, Paul just finished saying, look, we weren't greedy, we weren't self-centered, we didn't come pushing our authority on you. Right? And then he gives this picture, no, no, we were like a nursing mother. I, I think you could argue that if you want an example of pure motives, of a lack of greed or self-centeredness, lack of selfishness. A nursing mom is about as, as clear of a picture as you're going to get, right? And so to share our lives in the name of Christ means we, we do so with gentleness. Friends, it means with our, with our children, with our families, in the church, in the community, we're not rough, we're not pushy. There's a tenderness about our lives as followers of Christ. There's a warmth. There's a softness it means we listen, we care, we love. So, so gentleness, but we also see affection. What does verse 8 say? We were so affectionately desirous of you. In other words, we had so much affection for you. We had this, such a big desire to care for you that we shared our lives with you because you were so dear to us. We loved you so much. That phrase, affectionately desirous, is the ESV translated. It's one word in the Greek. It's actually a very rare word. It only occurs two times in the New Testament. And it's this concept that's very emotional. That has this very deep, fond affection. This earnest desire. In fact, in in the ancient world, we see that Greek word inscribed on gravestones. The gravestones of young children that died in in their early years of childhood. That's That's how... Parents would describe their feelings, this affection, this this deep yearning, this desire. Of course, again, we can see that in nursing moms. A mom nursing a child is this intimate, this this affectionate experience. You're not just providing a physical need, but there's warmth and tenderness and affection and love. And, and, and a mom is able to connect and show affection to a, a nursing baby in a way that no dad can ever experience. Right? Dads, change as many diapers as you can. Maybe the most helpful thing you can do with a newborn. Right? If you're bottle feed, jump in and help out. Walk with the, the, the child. Take them outside so mom can rest while the baby's crying. But we, we'll never experience that kind of affectionate, intimate experience that a nursing mother does. And that's what Paul describes his feeling towards those believers. 
that He's invested in. And so, to share our lives in the church with friends and neighbors means that we we share our lives with affection. We communicate love in what we say, what we do. Our thoughts, our words, our prayers should communicate love and affection. But but thirdly, I, I think we see this idea of devotion. Paul writes there, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Look, babies require some care, do they not? And they require somebody who's not going to care for them and be kind of hit or miss. If I think of it, if I have time, if there's nothing good on Netflix, if I'm freed up, then I'll care for my newborn baby. No, no. Moms are dedicated to care for their children. And that word care has, has roots in the idea of warming. Originally, it was even used to describe like a mother sitting on her eggs to keep them warm, safe, and protected. Anybody uh, seen or heard of, I think it's a Netflix documentary series called Penguin Town? Nobody? Literally no one else. Please, somebody put your hand up. Okay, thank you, Tim. Good night. Leave me hanging like that. So apparently there's this town in South Africa that every year this this rare uh, 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 species of penguin comes and migrate and they come back every year to the same exact spot and they, they lay their eggs and during the, the period while their eggs are there, they, they sit on the eggs and it's not like in the middle of nowhere, it's like in a town. And so they're like on the beach and under people's, you know, porches and in, in their back steps and under, under you know, wheelbarrows. And the, the, the series is narrated such that like they're all given names and the narrator's acting like they're actual human beings. And, and they're like, you know, uh, Mr. Wheelbarrow and, and Mrs. Wheelbarrow and blah, blah, blah. But, but these, these penguins mate like for life and they have relationships and they lay these eggs and then every day they gotta take turns sitting on the eggs and either the mom or the dad will then go and dive into the ocean and avoid getting eaten by a sea lion, eat a bunch of fish and then come back and spit the fish back up so that their babies, once they're born, can survive. But of course, before they've hatched out of the eggs, what do they have to do? They have to sit. All day long, dedicated, in rain, in, 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 in sun, when the bigger birds come to try to get their eggs, when the stray dogs from the town, as they often will show, try to come and, and steal the eggs. And guess what? In the, in the episode that I watched, when the, when the dog comes up trying to get at the eggs, that mama's not going anywhere. She just sits there on her eggs, making dirty looks at that dog, saying, you can come and get me if you want, but I'm not leaving this egg. There's dedication and again, that's the root of this word, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, warming those eggs. See, as we seek to share our lives with people, we do so with devotion. That means we're committed to the people that God's put on our hearts. It, it may only be one person in your life, two people, three people, six people. You, you can only have this kind of gentleness and affection and devotion with a limited number of people. But you do so and you're attentive and you're available to their needs. You're selfless. You're sacrificial. Again, think of a nursing mother. Think of the selflessness and the, and the sacrificial nature waking up in the middle of the night. Moms, you remember that feeling when you're unable to leave. for Like if you get two and a half hours out of the house and then have to come back before it's time to nurse again. Right? That's sacrifice, dedication, investing time. We're called to live among those who we serve. Build relationship. This is in the church. This is out of the church. To be an example. 
to how to follow Christ. See, when we trust in the gospel, we're called to share that gospel with others. And that means we speak the gospel and it means we share our lives. And we do so with gentleness, with affection, with dedication. Now, as I thought about what this means and what this actually looks like in the day-to-day of life, speaking truth and sharing our lives, I, I thought about Neil and Renee Livingstone. And Neil was the University Christian Fellowship D.C. area director when I was at school at College Park. And as the area director, it means he ministered on campus, but he trained staff, he invested in students, he was committed to the gospel, he would speak at various campuses around the D.C. area, and, and the man loved the word. He was the one that taught me the inductive Bible study method that I've taught you guys at men's retreats, that we teach our life group leaders. It's what I use to prepare sermons. Inductive method. Observe, interpret, apply. I learned that from Neil Livingstone. And he loves the scripture, boldly teaches the gospel. In fact, he is now currently the national learning director of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. I haven't spoken to him for years, by the way. But, but he also, in addition to speaking the truth, speaking the gospel, shares his life. And I remember even when he was the D.C. Metro Area Director, coming on campus, having lunch with students, listening to us. And like Paul, he wasn't doing it for the money or for the fame or for power. He didn't push his authority on us. He didn't tout his position. He was gentle. He was devoted. He knew that the gospel had the power to transform lives. I remember one time when I was a student leader in the group and we were having this disagreement because we wanted to restrict the speakers that we invited to speak at our fellowship to only those that fit in in a very narrow theological perspective. And Neil knew that that was not the right course for a non-denominational gospel-centered ministry on campus. And But he didn't want to use his authority to force us as student leaders to, to, to invite certain speakers and, and pastors. And I remember sitting down with him saying, can you make us do this? Like as student leaders, we, we want to do X, you're, you're encouraging us to, to, to do Y, but, but can you, do you have the authority to make us do this? And he refused to answer me. He's like, Tim, you're missing the point, man. I've been doing this for a long time. This is, this is not wise. And so he sought to, to lead us gently toward the, the wisest path. I remember when I graduated college and I, and I had decided to do an internship with InterVarsity. And Neil and Renee opened up their home to me. And I lived in their basement for nine months with them and their, and their three daughters. And, and I got to see them outside a formal ministry setting. I got to see them wake up and, and, and go through the, the early morning school routine. I got to see them living life together, eating dinner together, raising their family as they shared their life with me, opening their home to me. See, they knew that they had been entrusted with the gospel and that, that meant not just occasionally showing up at a college campus to deliver a gospel ministry, but that, mean, that meant investing in the lives of people, sharing their life with me, sharing Christ through their words and through their investment. And I got to see that. I, I got to live that. And again, each of us, friends, if you call Jesus Savior, He has entrusted this message with you. And it means we have to speak the gospel. It means we're called to share our lives. So look, as, as we wrap up, I, I want you to keep, keep five quick things in mind. I don't have them on the screen. Who's going to write these down? Okay. Find, find those people with their hands up if you, if you miss them. Five, five things just to keep in mind, friends, as, as we seek to, to do this. First of all, speaking and sharing must go together. 
I know some of you are sitting here thinking, okay, I'm entrusted with the gospel. I need to speak the gospel. I need to share my life. How do I prioritize those? Prioritize those. Which one do I do first? Let me do one of them first. I'll check it off and then I'll go to the second one. You can't do that. You have to do them together. It does no good to speak the gospel to people who, with whom you're not going to share your life. It does no good to share your life with someone if you're not going to speak truth to them. They have to be incorporated and intertwined. Look, when the gospel has truly taken root in our hearts, if we have truly been transformed, then to do one is to do the other. See, to share the gospel is to share your life. To share your life is to share the gospel. Secondly, we ourselves have to believe and experience and live the gospel. We have to believe it and experience it and live it for ourselves if we're going to share it with others. You cannot tell people about the life and the forgiveness and the hope that you yourself have not experienced. We have to use what what it is that we're peddling, if you will. And so we're not talking about random acts of kindness and senseless acts of beauty. I don't know who came up with that, but it's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I'm talking about acts of kindness driven by the love of God. I'm talking about not senseless acts of beauty, but gospel-driven acts of beauty, investing in loving and serving one another because of what Jesus has done for you. Don't just repeat something you heard somebody else say. Share the gospel because you know it's true. Share the gospel because it's the only thing that you can hold on to, the only thing that you can invest in. Because the gospel feeds your soul. Jesus drives your life. The Spirit's work in your heart is the only way you can go on. And so it's the only thing you have to offer anybody else. So we have to believe it. Thirdly, when we talk about speaking the gospel and sharing our lives, we're talking about evangelism and discipleship. And there's a difference between evangelizing the lost and discipling a believer. But I think we've done a disservice by overly dividing these two, those two concepts. Because the gospel is not just for unbelievers. Evangelize just means to, to proclaim the gospel. And the good news of what Jesus has accomplished in his death and resurrection is the center of what we share with the lost, and it's also the center of what we minister one another to fellow believers. The gospel is not just the way you become a Christian. Okay, now you're a Christian. Well, try to follow God and be a good person on your own. No, it's faith in Christ that drives the way you live every day. So we need a Savior to bring us the grace of God the first day we believe and every day thereafter. In Christ we have forgiveness and new life and freedom and an identity and reconciliation and purity. And that's the only thing that's going to grow and mature believers. It's the only thing that's going to bring the lost to Christ. And so when we talk about these concepts of speaking the truth of the gospel and sharing our lives, we're talking about, yes, proclaiming Christ to the lost, what we typically call evangelism, And proclaiming Christ to believers, what we typically call discipleship, but they're not all that different. Fourthly, sharing the gospel and sharing our lives must be done in community. We cannot divorce gospel truth from gospel community. Listen, the most effective way to communicate the gospel is in the context of relationships. They see, then people don't just hear the gospel from us, they see the gospel in us. And that needs to happen in the context of brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and I've seen it, people are often drawn to Christian community before they're ever drawn to the Christian message. You hear me? And so we've got to live it. 
we got to live it together. Not as individuals. It's no mistake that Paul is writing in the first person plural. We shared our lives. If Paul had showed up in Thessalonica by himself, the gospel would not have taken root. At least nearly not as effectively. But when the three of those men showed up, And people became Christians and they now began to hear the message of Christ and they began to see it operating in community. Something happened. This is what Tim Chester and Steve Timmis say in their book, Total Church. Look at this quote on the screen. The means by which sinners are evangelized, the gospel word and the gospel community, are the means by which sinners are discipled. We continue to evangelize one another as Christians because it continues to be the gospel message with which we exhort and encourage one another. The good news that gives life is the good news that transforms. What is it that transforms the gospel word and the gospel community? Paul, Silas, and Timothy are sharing their calling as leaders. But friends, this is not something just for the the formal leaders of the church. This is for all of us. Because listen, no matter how well Pastor Matt and I do this and live this out, it will never be enough for the hundreds of people that Living Hope Church connects with. The elders alone cannot effectively communicate the gospel to each and every one of you. The elders alone, the five of us, cannot effectively share our lives with each and every one of you. There's just not enough for us to go around. Maybe if we had a hundred elders, if we had a hundred elders at Living Hope Church, maybe you guys wouldn't need to do this with one another. But but we don't have that, and that's not God's design. But you know what we do have? We have hundreds of men and women that love Jesus, that can speak truth to one another, that can share their lives with one another, that can be invested and affectionate and dedicated and gentle, that can care for one another. And so we have to do this as a community. See, sharing the gospel and sharing our lives must be done in community. Fifthly, and you're not going to like this, but but I have to say it. The fifth thing to keep in mind is that gospel community is hard and we're going to fail. Living Hope Church is going to fail. The people in Living Hope Church is going to fail. Now listen, some of you have seen the gospel at work here. Some of you have experienced what it's like to have brothers and sisters share their lives with you. But, but I fear that for every story of someone feeling loved, even in this community, which, which by the way, I think Living Hope is amazing. I love being here. But my my fear is that for every story of someone feeling loved and cared for and encouraged in a time of need, I fear that there's a person here who has felt overlooked or forgotten. And the reason I know that is because some of you have shared it with me. And so let me just tell you the reality that the church is going to let you down. Because people are going to let you down. A godly woman texted me this week. And she read the blog that I put out this week called a, a bullpen of relationships. And it, it, if that doesn't make any sense to you, I don't have time, just read the blog. But we all need a bullpen of relationships. And she, she emailed, she texted me this week, and she said, she, this is basically what she said. She said, this is good in theory, but I've been through personal trials, and too often the church community was silent. And she said, the value of relationships is, is deteriorating in society and even in the church. And man, that hit me hard. And this this is what I wrote back to you. I'm just going to read to you my text back to her verbatim. Much of what you say is true. Church life and relationships are hard. We fail often. Relationship in our culture is devalued. 
People isolate and hide their needs. People are busy and overwhelmed. People don't open up and ask for help. And so we can either give up and withdraw, or we can be the kind of people for others that we need others to be for us. When we are struggling, we can reach out for help and tell people specifically what we need. We can give grace and forgive when our expectations aren't met or worse, when we are hurt. We can show up at church and small groups and make connections with the very people that we need and that need us. Real relationships and community only happen when we are proactive, engaged, and vulnerable. I don't know any other way to do it. We need to speak truth. We need to live together in community and share our lives together. And yeah, it's going to be hard and messy. But, but we must trust in the saving work of Christ for ourselves. And as we proclaim the gospel, as we share our lives, we need to work together in the midst of our, our, our strengths and our weaknesses, our successes and our failures. We must minister the truth of Christ, minister the hope of gospel to believers and to unbelievers together in this messy Christian community. Now, now here's the beautiful thing that I want to end on. All that we've been describing today, today, all that Paul says that they were trying to do, this great vision that I've cast before us, this is what Jesus has done for us. Right? I, I mean, this idea of sharing your life, that's the incarnation. That's God in heaven taking on flesh and coming to earth as a human. Living among us, sharing his life with us. And Jesus boldly spoke the word of God. And he shared his life. And he was gentle, he was affectionate, he was devoted, and he still is. Friends, he still is. By his Holy Spirit, he still is. And so the team's going to come and we're going to close again in worship. And before you make a to-do list, before you write down the names of three people that, that you're praying for, that God's calling you to invest in, before you, before you go and, and you ask for help to live in community, before you ask God to forgive you for the ways that you've judged the church for failing, before you go to your spouse and you say, how can we live this out with our children? We, we just need to go to Jesus and, and to say, Jesus, will you do this for me? Will you speak truth to me? Will you again, by your Holy Spirit, reside in me and share your life with me? I need your gentleness, Lord Jesus. I need your affection. I need you to remind me today that, that, that I'm loved and I need your devotion. Not just for this hour and a half on Sunday morning, but will you walk with me like a nursing mother cares for her children? Come Holy Spirit and walk with us. Let's stand together and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of Christ and the beautiful picture that scripture gives us. And would you now, as we sing, as we worship, as we pray, would you send your Holy Spirit to encourage us, to empower us? Come Holy Spirit in a gentle way into our hearts to nudge and encourage us. Come Holy Spirit and bring the love and the affection of the God of the universe. Remind us of your devotion and your commitment to us. Father, we dedicate ourselves to you only because you have dedicated yourself to us. Hear us, Lord.